Being recorded, everybody, episode number 44. Joining me today, my no less charming and also no less named Joe, charming guest co-host and R&R film critic, Joe Matt. Joe, thank you for being here. Yeah, happy to fill the Joe quota for today. This, uh, yeah, the, the Joe quota, we're, we always feel it when, when Joe's not here, but we're going we're gonna to have a good show today. Um, really, the reason we wanted to get you in here is because for a few weeks now, you've been giving us some movie reviews, and you had a, an interesting comment one or two episodes ago where you said that um, focus more on what you say about the movie rather than the, the grade that you give the movie. I was kind of, you kind of gave a little caveat to your reviews. And I thought, you know, it'd be yeah. interesting to actually have the critic explain some of the rationale behind the, uh, the grading that goes into it and um, give the audience a, some, some background about, you know, what goes into you writing a film review and what you do and don't take off for. I thought that would be, that'd be kind of fun. Our, our music a critic for now has chosen to remain anonymous, but our, our film critic is uh, brave enough to <laughs> put, his, put his name out there and say bad things about movies. I mean, it always takes a bit of courage to do. No, I'm kidding. Um, let's, let's start, Joe. You and I have been friends for a long time, and you've been doing probably movie reviews for maybe longer than we've been friends or somewhere around there. I mean, you've began kind of writing these as, as Facebook statuses and I mean, it grew from there. You know, let me, I'm going to turn yeah. it over to you. Tell us, kind of, kind of give us the, the background of how you fell into the film critique and um, some of the highlights of some films that, you, that you've reviewed in the past that kind of continue to push you in that direction. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I just always really enjoyed movies. I've, I've been someone who, since he was like 10 years old, watched the Oscars. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm <laughs> which it seems like fewer and fewer people are watching these days. Yeah, I'm still, we just lost half yeah. our audience on that. That's fine. That's <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I just, I've always really enjoyed movies. I'd say probably I got more into TV and film criticism, probably at the end of high school, early college, honestly, like lost kind of got me into that really hard because I feel like everyone who watched lost, you had to read shit about it too because you're like what are the theories what's happening <laughs> and so that kind of what sent me down the rabbit hole of like following more reviewers seeing what they had to say and now on twitter like i follow a bunch of people who are always talking about movies and tv shows so, so that just kind of built it up well so let me ask you this does it does it take because so you're you're a fan of film that's obvious yeah yeah I, I know that you like watching movies and also you enjoy critiquing movies and it seems to me that those are slightly at odds with each other right i mean as a, as a fan you want to enjoy the movie and as a critic you're kind of looking for what doesn't doesn't work mm. are there movies that you're that, that that you're such a fan of that you you try to very much you know not put on your your critic hat <laughs> when you're watching them let me give you the example i don't know f9 yeah. for example i mean it's something like that <laughs> Uh, I have not seen F9 surprisingly yet, but I have seen all, all the rest. And uh, I, I think that's, that's part of at least how I view, view it is you kind of judge each movie on its own terms, at least to a degree. Sure. Like I'm probably never going to see a Fast and the Furious movie and be like, that was an A plus. I love it. Best movie of the year. <laughs> but, you know, you're not going to judge 
you know, fast nine on the, uh, the exact same categories as you're judging Schindler's list. Like they're <laughs> completely different movies. So, you know, so yeah, I think to a degree, I'm always trying to judge like, what is the movie aiming for? And is it achieving that? Sure. And, I'll, and I'll, I'd say most of the fast and furious movies have done fairly well. If you're grading them on that kind of curve. Right. So, yeah. So it's I'll not, like, you're one. never going to watch them and be like, yeah, you're not gonna be like this movie deserves all the Oscars. The acting's incredible. Right. This screenplay is the best I've <laughs> had the pleasure of seeing in years. But right. you go for that to have a good time and to have, you know, Dom talk about family while drinking <laughs> Corona, blowing so, a skyscraper to smithereens, yeah. and probably killing you know ten thousand people. Yes, no, it's all about family. Um, I know one of your one of your big reviews you wrote early on that got a lot of you know publicity, if you will. That kind of you know I would suspect made you take this more seriously was a review that you wrote for Wonder Woman back in the first one. Um, what what was it about that review, or what was it about that movie that you think triggered such a response from the people that were following you already? All right, to, to be to be clear, it's not like I got some like major insane well, no, response. No, no. <laughs> yeah. All, all relative to, to, to the Joe Matt's, you know, uh, following. But still, do you think that you found something you need to say about that movie that people thought, oh, that was an interesting take on, on Wonder Woman? I'll, I'll be honest. I think that one was mostly just like, I think everyone, that was such a huge movie right. in multiple regards. I mean, the first successful movie with a female lead in the superhero role. I mean, obviously we had like, Catwoman, <laughs> which right. the less said about that movie, the better. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the Jennifer Garner one that was a spinoff from Daredevil. But oh, you, that mean, one you was... mean the Oscar-winning Electra? Yeah, no, yeah, Electra. Yeah. Genre-busting, yes. And then Wonder Woman also had the upside of being like a success story for DC, which still is a few and far between. Although yeah. I haven't watched Suicide Squad yet, but I'm excited. But uh, yeah, that one, I don't think I had anything amazing to say about it it was just like i wanted to say something about it because i thought everyone's talking about this i'd like to contribute my thoughts on it and then uh so yeah on my blog that was i believe the first full movie review that i did and i've generally previous years i've been doing like here are the 10 movies to look forward to this summer more so than looking back and critiquing movies so this was kind of a switch for me. And then that same summer, I did a Baby Driver review, which, I mean, I don't think it's a surprise just because Edgar Wright's so awesome that I had a lot more to say, actually, about that one. <laughs> right. But fewer, fewer overall clicks on the blog because, you know, more people were excited to see Wonder Woman than Baby Driver. Who do you think right now, kind of the, the feeling I get when I look at trailers for movies and obviously there are exceptions. I know my wife feels the same way, probably even more strongly than I do. The lack of originality, a lot of remakes, mm. a lot of sequels. Are you hopeful that will change? What, what are, what are some trends you see for that particular, I will call it a problem to some degree, because I think it, it, it is unfortunate that we don't have the originality that seemed to exist in the past. Although it's hard to know if that's really true or not, but a lot of sequels, a lot of you know major right. that are focused on you know action, etc. Do you do you think that will change, or do you think that's going to be the course that we're on for a little bit for a little bit longer still? I mean, I I definitely think at least for the 
foreseeable future, that's the course we're on. I actually, I think, you know, this is something a lot of people who think about film a lot are talking about. And so before we got on, I, I double checked and got on the domestic box office on Box Office Mojo for 99, 09, and 2019, since that was the last year we have real data for the box office. So 99, we had Phantom Menace as number one. So obviously that still is kind of a sequel type deal. Right. Toy Story 2 was in the top five. But in the rest of the top 10, you've got The Blair Witch Project. So just like a mini budget horror movie. Right. Runaway Bride, so ro original rom-com. The Mummy, Big Daddy, Tarzan, The Matrix, The First Austin Powers, and The Sixth Sense. So that's, you know, obviously, you know, Tarzan's not an entirely original movie. The Mummy is at least semi-based on old 1920s, 30s movies. Those are pretty original movies for the most right. part. Then we jump forward to 2009. You've got Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. You've got a Harry Potter movie. You've got Twilight. So you're seeing a lot. You're seeing more an Ice Age movie, which I don't even know what number Ice Age movie that was. <laughs> so you've got more sequels moving in, but you've got The Blind Side, which, you know, I don't know that we're thrilled The Blind Side made the top 10, but it's an original movie. Right, right. Monsters vs. Aliens, Star Trek's a reboot, but I mean, there's a real well done one. You've got yeah. The Hangover, so you still have a comedy in the top 10. You have Avatar, you have Up. So there's still a decent amount of original stuff. And then we move all the way up to 2019, and uh, the, the picture's changed a bit here. We've got It Chapter 2, Joker, which I'm sure some people will argue is some original thing going on. I don't think there's anything original about that movie. Uh, Aladdin, Spider-Man, Far From Home, uh, Rise of Skywalker, Captain Marvel, Frozen 2, Toy Story 4, The Lion King, Avengers Endgame. The highest original movie is Us, which is number 12. So oh, now the entire, entire top 10 is we're remaking animated movies that are semi-live action now. It's the MCU, it's sequels. Right. So that, that's what dominates now. And it's worth pointing out, I mean, the, the, the movies, I mean, I guess maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not just that they're in the top 10, but like they're doing, like they're making a lot of money. And not only do I, right, like they're making a lot of money, not, not, not only relative to other movies, but also just in general, the MCU is this, you know, probably what, billion dollar franchise or something. I mean, it's, it's you know, huge dollars that are going into this. Right. That's the other thing is, I think part of this is also a reaction to movies becoming more of a global market. Yes. Because, you know, if you have a drama where there's a lot of talking, that's not going to play as well in China right. as if you have Iron Man blowing shit up. Right. Or Revenge of the so, Fallen where it's no dialogue. <laughs> I mean, that's just really, that was like full, like, go like a whole ham right. just going for robots to show anything. So right. I think that's part of it. What I will say is, you know, it's, I think it's a little bit depressing that we don't see, I think, you know, the mid-budget kind of drama has largely disappeared. Those movies that you used to see that would be made for $20 million, $40 million. Right. Those hardly ever exist anymore unless, no, you know, unless you have a director who is pull or you're aiming for an Oscar. Otherwise, those movies don't exist. Okay, but doesn't that surprise you given the ubiquity of a little thing called the camera phone? I mean, why, why, why are we not seeing more? And let me, I'm not the first person to say this, but yeah. this is a point made by Christopher Nolan. You know, mm. everybody's saying that, oh, everybody's an artist. Everyone's, well, where are all the masterpieces? I mean, people can make a, a movie now for 
you know, very cheap. I know you and I before have gone to the art house in our hometown where they've shown, you know, people that make independent movies. Why are we not seeing a, a, a surplus in the mid-budget, or even, I would even say low-budget film, given that well, so, presumably the, the, it, would be, it should right. be easier today to make a movie than it was in the past. Now, maybe, I know, I don't know that to be true. I would suspect that that's the case. I could be wrong, but I would think that that's the case. Well, I, see, that, that's what I would say kind of has happened, though, is that now the middle budget has disappeared for the most part. Like, you could, and those movies, if they're being made, are largely being made on, like, streaming services now. Like, Netflix sure. will probably fund, if, you're, if you've had success in the past as a director, they'll fund you a $20 million movie. Okay. For the most part, those aren't happening. You either have big blockbusters that are 100 million plus, or you have these more indie movies that are a couple million at most. Right. Um, yeah, there, there definitely is more experimentation with lower budget things. Obviously, like you're less likely to see those at a theater, I think. Those also right. ultimately usually end up on streaming. But like Steven Soderbergh, who you know did the Oceans movies and stuff, He's experimented and shot some of his films on iPhones. Obviously, you know, he wasn't just straight on an iPhone. He had like no. cameras attached that made them better and stuff like that. But he's experimented with it. You know, I think every year you'll see some smaller indie films and you'll read about them. And you're like, oh, this was shot on an iPhone. Like, that's incredible. So I do think that's happening. But, you know, a good, a good example of why, you know, all the the extremes of you're either low budget or big budget is if you look at what happens with directors who make successful low budget movies, like Colin Trevorrow did safety, not guaranteed. It's a movie I really like Aubrey Plaza is the main star, Jake Johnson from new girl. It's, you know, a good kind of rom-com movie. His next movie is Jurassic world. <laughs> right. And he, and he, before he had a, a couple missteps with some of his films, he was actually supposed to be the guy to direct the third Star Wars movie. Um, you have Chloe Zhao, who just won the Oscar for Best Director for uh, you know a smaller budget movie. She's doing Immortals now, which is the one of the next MCU films. Right. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the director, but uh, Boys of Summer was this really good you know, kind of a coming of age movie with mostly like younger unknown actors. We had Nick Offerman and Allison Brie were like supporting characters. His next movie after he did that one, Kong Skull Island. <laughs> like, right. That, that's what happens. And, you know, you'll probably, there's a handful of directors who are going to be like, no, I want to stick to making these low budget ones. But I mean, I think everyone's kind of trying to ultimately pull off of Christopher Nolan where, right. You make Memento and you catch people's attention and then, and then you make your Dark Knight movies and now he can make whatever the fuck he wants. And he's kind of, I mean, I think he probably has more pull to make whatever he wants than anyone, like even more so than like a Spielberg at this point, because I mean, I don't know what, how Tenant actually came out budget wise with how weird the COVID stuff was with right, the box right. office, but every other movie he's made whether it's original or it's a franchise has been successful. So I think that's what everyone's chasing. And, you know, normally I think you would see that build up where like you'd make an indie movie and then they'd give you a $20 million movie. But now it's just, no, here you go. You have $150 million. Don't fuck it up. Now, maybe you don't know this. This is kind of, this is a pretty detailed question, but I'm curious when, when directors, 
I imagine for a low budget movie, a director has their hand in a lot of things on the set. When right. you have a hundred million dollar movie, you have thousands of extras, you know, dozens of main characters in some cases. Like something like Jurassic World could just be this huge operation. Does the job of the director change from the small budget to the big budget? And does that concern you that you know they're they're being thrust into this totally different world? Mm. And they're still being judged as a director, even though their actual job may be totally different on a big on a, on a big set versus a small right. set. Um, you know, I I can't say I have like an amazing grasp of exactly like what directors are do- like each. Yeah, I think each director is different too. Where sure. some guys are more hands on. Like you'll see some guys they'll be their own cinematographer. Other guys will have like a like a Roger Deakins that they want to work with every time stuff like that. But I would have to assume, you know, yeah, if you're going from a movie where the budget was $2 million to one where it's 150, you have to be a lot better at delegating. Right. Because there's just, you're, you know, as much as some of these guys are control freaks, and a lot of them really are, you know, on some level, you're just going to have to trust people to understand your vision. And yeah, I think there, there is, you know, an issue there where like uh, Josh Trank, he made chronicle which was this like fantastic kind of superhero low budget like found footage type thing with michael b jordan and it was a really good movie his next movie fantastic four they basically just kicked him off because they were upset with how it was turning out and you know there's argument now because anytime a director gets kicked off their movie there's always the argument of like well his version was going to be better than this piece of trash which oh yeah that's not league yeah, and I guess, I guess Zack Snyder and his fans were semi-proven correct. I mean, it was better. I don't know that it was worth right, four right. hours, but right. it was better. But how low was the bar? Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was pretty low. But yeah, the point here is, yeah, Josh Trank seemed like this promising director, and then you give him a way bigger movie to deal with, and it just kind of escaped his grasp, and. I think that's that's the thing is these as much as you're not game as they're trying to not gamble by only giving only making huge movies that with pre-existing IP where they're like people will come and see this you know if if the director fucks it up bad enough it's not going to matter if people are like this movie's trash right they're not going to see it which is exactly what happened to that fantastic four so yeah I I don't think this is the ideal way for the system to work but it is the reality of where we're at now. And it's not, you know, it's not going to change unless people go and pay to see, you know, more something like yeah, that. Yeah, unless you're going to pay. To, yeah, like if you're going like back in the 90s, you're going to go see Julia Roberts and Denzel in the Pelican Brief, like which even that is based off a book. But the, yeah, the point is, you're, like really movie stars almost to a degree. I mean, they still exist, but they matter so much less too. Because it used to be like, Oh, Tom Hanks is in this. Denzel's in this. Julie Roberts is in this. I'm gonna go see it. Right. Like, if you look, like, pretty much every movie star that we have now, I think if you go through like their recent, their last decade, there's gonna be some movie that bombed that probably in the '90s maybe succeeds, but now people are like, ah, I don't want to spend you know fifteen dollars, right, to go risk it to see something I don't know what it's gonna be like. Well, and that's the other thing, too, is I think a lot about the role of 
you know, two two things. You know, the movie becoming every every movie now almost feels like it has to be a brand to be successful. Right. Which I yeah. mean that it can't just be a movie, but it has to be a movie with some social media campaign, with some YouTube contribution, with you know, if there's all these little avenues that it has to succeed in, in order for people to, you know, in order for it to really make it, I guess. Um, I just think of like how quickly we go through TV shows. Like they'll release a season of television and you watch it like in a weekend. It's like, well, that weekend you just spent watching, that was, you know, a year's worth of work that you just knocked out, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, right. binge watching. And it's, it's, it's the, it's the uh, pace of consumption, I guess, that, mm-hmm. that concerns me. And I think social media plays into that a little bit because um, the uh, spoiler is such a concern now. Right. And the moment something comes out, either you watch it right away or it's com- or it's completely ruined. And if it's a situation where they're releasing a whole season on the day on, on a streaming service, you run the risk of it being spoiled as well. You know, it just right. seems like there's this, this, this huge demand. I, I, I essentially view Game of Thrones as just being like the last season I viewed it as like an eight hour movie. Like, it's like you, you, you want you want to watch or not the last season. I got into Game of Thrones a little bit late. Yeah. But like we watched it just back to back to back to back, just try, trying to catch up. And it was just like a long movie at that point. It wasn't even like a television show. It was just like a long movie at that point. And um, it, it, what do you think about, like, all right, that was a decade's worth of work that you just knocked out. You know, to me, that just seems crazy. I understand why movie companies don't want to take risks when, uh, you know, that's kind of what they're up against. But I, I understand their aversion because it's like, wow, you know, you put it, it's, your the um, the the rate of consumption is so high. It's you know how how could you make anything original given that you have to make it so quickly? It's easier just to kind of churn out right. a movie every year, a sequel every year, you know. And so I I, I, I understand from where they're, where they're coming from, but I, I do. Are there are there any uh, who's the director that did the killing of a sacred deer? Um, shoot, it's Yorgos, and I'm gonna have to look up his last name. I think it's like Lanthimos. But that's an original, which, movie, right? That's that's an original one. Yes, he is. He's right. very much a guy working in a pretty original spaces. I would say. Yes. So there are directors that are, I think, having some success. I think that movie did well. I, I don't. I don't know for sure, but um, there are still directors that are taking risks. It seems with uh, storytelling. I mean, I would consider Sacred Deer to be one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. I mean, it's pretty bizarre right i i've seen three of his movies i think and the favorite is probably the least weird and that's a pretty weird movie in and of itself but i mean yeah you had the lobster which (laughs) right where it's like you you go to this place if you don't find someone to be your like your part you know your spouse then you turn into an animal of your choosing right which just sounds insane (laughs) honestly he was he was one where i really had to it took me time to adjust to like what he's really doing like i remember watching the killing of the sacred deer right. and for the first half of the movie i was just like what the fuck am i watching <laughs> and then i don't remember exactly what it was but somewhere in there it like i think it was like when yeah, I no, like, so i can remind you when for you it was when the kids turned on each other and then you realize yeah, no, it they're all just in it for themselves. Then it becomes like the whole right, the whole family's like trying to win Colin Farrell's favor to like survive. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, this is just a super dark comedy, and now I'm in. Like I get it. 
but yeah, he's, you know, there are people who are doing original stuff still. Yorgos is a good example. Um, an interesting guy for me is the Denis Villeneuve, who's not entirely working in totally original places. Cause like his last movie was Blade Runner 2049 and now he's doing Dune. But what I like about him is, is he's t- kind of taking risks. He's not doing like, you know, he's not just doing franchises that are recent that you're like, or no, these are a billion dollar movies. Like, I mean, Blade Runner, I don't think even did that well, ultimately budget in a comparison to its budget at the box office in part because Blade Runner is still kind of like, it's not really a mainstream classic in a way. It's kind of still kind of a cult classic. And I thought his 2049 was fantastic. I loved it. I I, I did as well. I think Blade Runner has such a cult following. We, we have a mutual friend. I won't, I won't give their name, but they, they said something one time that I thought was very brave to say about, about Blade Runner. It's a good movie, but it's boring. I mean, you just have to. Admit, <laughs> I mean, you just have to be willing to say it. I can, I can understand that perspective. <laughs> and uh, I thought, yeah, that, that's true. I really like Blade Runner. I also enjoy Blade Runner twenty forty nine. The first one's a boring movie. That's fine, but it's you know it's a little boring. And um, it's still, yeah, a, I, can understand I would still that. say a masterpiece. But um, I, I, I am hopeful that there will, that there will be more risk taking, and I'm, I'm hopeful that streaming platforms, particularly things like YouTube, I, I hope serve that role and give people a chance to. To, um, to put risk-taking content out there. I, I do think it's important that artists feel free to take risks, but they'll never be completely free to take risks when they're making movies with other people's money, <laughs> right? I mean, they'll never be complete freedom. Sure, there, there's limits to it for, for sure. Compared to someone who's, say, like a painter, where I guess I don't know. Right. Sure, I would think like art supplies are cheaper than like a whole bunch of cameras or something. Right. I mean, you can just afford to take more <laughs> with the painting than you can with Definitely. Let me uh, ask- to your wait, real quick, to your point about like also how like streaming and like our how TV kind of comes into this is you look at a guy like Alex Garland who did Ex Machina, which was a really original thing. Annihilation is based off of a sci- sci-fi book, but my understanding is he changed a lot of the plot of that. I, I really enjoyed that one. Good, by the way, I thought they were both. Yeah. And then his, I, I think he's got a movie coming up soon, but his next project after those two was Devs, which was streaming on, I think it was a Hulu show. So sometimes you're seeing these people also, they're seeing that there's more creative freedom, even beyond just like making a movie for Netflix, but in just making a TV show sometimes. Oh, yeah. Or like, you know, Barry Jenkins, who, you know, he's won an Oscar. He did Moonlight. Um, he recently did a, the Underground Railroad adaptation on amazon which is really good Hmm. so i think they're seeing like sometimes that's you know sometimes the money is just better from the streaming places versus going to a studio if you're wanting to try to make something that does go a little bit outside of what's obviously popular that's a good point and i think the uh there's still really good television being made and uh i think in a way making a television series is maybe a little less risky because you're making it episodically. So if you make a bad episode, you can learn from it and, you know, fix it on the next one. Yeah, right. No, that's very true. So, and I, I think you're seeing with things like Game of Thrones and there are other examples, but you can make extremely high quality content on a television basis, you know, episodes rather than a giant movie that's 
two hours long or something. Like I said, to me, I, to, I, I see Game of Thrones just being like one giant long movie. I mean, it's, it's so well done. The production quality is so good. The acting is extraordinarily good. Um, it's enjoyable. It, it's one of, the, one of the few shows. I know people don't like the last season, but really they don't like the last episode of the last season. Like they like the last season. It's just like the last episode when Daenerys is <laughs> actually crazy they don't like. Which is fine. Teach well, and, and then the choice of who to put on the throne. I don't think anyone was no, like, oh, right. that was a good, good call. <laughs> yes. We're building up to this. <laughs> let's, let's go with the no, guy I, who we literally didn't have in one full season because no one cared about his story and it didn't fit with the rest of what was going on. Yeah. Like, that ending, ending that kind of thing. When you, when you have a show that built towards one main conclusion like the very it's, it's hard to make that satisfying because it's been it is. You know, people that have watching game of thrones for eight years it's i waited eight years for this bullshit this is what happens like hey <laughs> what would what, what you made you happy like if you had a one like what do you think's gonna happen <laughs> it's real remember now the, the, the best is the people who name their daughters like khaleesi and daenerys and stuff which... right it's like oh you named your daughter after a don't, don't do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wait till the show ends be sure <laughs> no, I had looking for like about about Xerxes. I guess I really fucked that one up. Too. Um. <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to touch on real quick, just yes. with you mentioned the money, which yeah, obviously the money yes. is what drives everything. Yes, and That's I mean a key part of our show. Well, one of the kind of sad things, but it, thankful that this woman exists, is uh, Megan Ellison, and she is the daughter of Larry Ellison, so she's the daughter of a billionaire. Right, right. And she's actually become a major producer in film. Mm. And, you know, she's she's produced some things that were bigger movies like Terminator Genesis and stuff. But a lot of like really good movies that I don't that probably struggled to find the money, like uh, The Master from Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, I love that movie. Okay, let's Uh, go. Her her from Spike Jones. Uh, Beale Street Could Talk, which is Barry Jenkins, who I just mentioned. Uh, Book Smart, which Olivia Wilde directed, which is one of the best comedies of 2019. Like, if you look through her producer credits, like, it's a lot of really good 20th century women, which is one of my favorite movies of the 2010s from Mike Mills. Just like a lot of good directors who probably would have struggled to like make some of these movies, she's been able to come in and throw her money around. So, I mean, it, I guess, you know, you're always at the whim of billionaires if you're trying to make a movie that's worth, you know, that takes 20 million or more dollars to make. So thankfully she's out there just kind of making movies that she wants to see made, which is awesome. But I wish there were more studios that were also doing this. I agree. Okay. And I comment on a couple of interesting points. Okay. Let's, let's go to favorites. We have. I, I want to get to one other thing after favorites, but right now let, let, let's go to favorites. We've been talking about trends yeah. in the industry, and you know it, it's always mm. what it is. That's fine. Sure. Still, there's still really good movies being made. There's still absolutely really good television being made. There's still good actors and actresses and directors and all the other stuff. Let's talk about favorites. I sure. remember sending a text to you and your brother about three months ago for, and I I made the argument, and I think you both said I was on the right track. I made the argument that the movie The Master is a perfect movie. Oh, yeah. That it's, 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 I, I, I watched that movie. Let me, let, let me, let me say something. I think I made this point on the podcast before. Let me, let me make it again. I believe it is possible to make a perfect poem. I think it's possible to make a perfect book. 
it's possible to make a perfect movie. It is not possible to make a perfect TV show because it's just too long. There's just no way. Seinfeld mm. is like, you know, sure. what, eight seasons long, however many season, episodes per season. It's, it's too much. A movie is finite enough that you can really make it perfect. I think The Master is a perfect movie. I watch it. I think there's not a second of this movie that I could change. I think Paul Thomas Ooh. Anderson is a genius. I think he has an extraordinary level of detail in his movies. I think he, he pays right. attention to things in such a perfect way. Um, I think it's a perfect movie. I, I, I loved it. it. First of all, it's a, it's kind of a terrifying movie, really. It's a terrifying movie. Um, but it's a perfect film. That really wasn't made that long ago, was it? I mean, how long did that movie? Uh, that was 2012. 2012. Well, how old am I? I don't fucking care about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends your perspective on whether yeah. or not that was a long time ago. It I would was, say uh, that, but... it, it was it was a talkie. It was a talkie. Um anyways, I'm 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 teeing that up to, to say this. I know I asked you to come up with some of your favorites as well. Let's let's talk about some of those, about some of your favorites. And I wanna before you know kind of turning it over to you for a discussion on that. There's a really interesting music review about uh, a song called Zombies by the Cranberries, uh, which is a very right. famous song. And Right. It, it was uh, in uh, one of the, re- the movies I reviewed not long ago, the uh, Zack Snyder yes. zombie movie. Z- yes. Yes. How much that World War Z? No, not that one. The other one. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. And it's a great song. And the, the, the reviewer of that song said the one of the key things about zombie is that it it demonstrated the necessity of rock and roll as a genre of music that zombies couldn't have been a jazz song it couldn't have been r&b it mm. couldn't have been a rap song it couldn't have been, it had to be rock when you're talking about your favorite movies when i think about paul thomas anderson and the master to me it, it shows why film is necessary that movie couldn't have been a book couldn't have been a radio program it couldn't have been a song you don't, you don't think that could have been a book i, I, I think it no, could have been a book no way i, I, I don't think the, the book is as good as the movie because what Tom, paul thomas anderson does visually wait, is incredible. wait so now i'm looking like a fool is it a book oh I, as far as i know it's not a book oh god i hope because not. I, I believe I like a fool. I, my, my understanding is you know it's inspired by a l ron hubbard Sure. Scientology. Yes. Oh, yeah, of course. And yes. then, you know, obviously he put his own spin on it. And it's not, you know, it's not a direct, like, this is what L. Right. Ron Hubbard was like and stuff. Yes. But right. right. It's kind of a loose. But, yeah, but I could imagine someone writing a book that would follow along those similar lines. But to your point, though, I don't think it would be difficult to make that book as exceptional as that movie is just because, I mean, some of the shots that he has in there are just breathtaking. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then uh, it might be visuals. it's up there for the best, most well-acted movie I've ever seen. Well, right. And again, further than needing for the film, right? Because like the acting is captured by Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, does a phenomenal job. Philip Seymour Hoffman, whom I whom yeah. I adore, is uh, phenomenal in that movie as well. Amy Adams is yes. great. Oh, yeah. So anyway, enough, uh, yeah. enough about yeah, sure. I, I <laughs> tee that up to you now. You send me a list of your favorites. You know, let's let, let's talk about some of them. Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Go ahead. Why is that one of your favorites? What is it? What does it do at, for a film that 
strikes perfection in, in your eyes. Well, one, one thing, I, I'll, one ca caveat I'll give about some of my favorites is uh, about, I think it's probably about 11 years ago now, I saw something on social media. It was like, hey, name your top 15 films of all time in the next 15 minutes. Just write them down. It doesn't have to be a perfect list. But of course, I overthought about it and probably thought about it for like two hours before I posted mine because that's who I am. But so I posted that list. And then five years later, I updated it. And I'm, I'm actually overdue not almost a year now on updating it again because I was like, I need to rewatch some of these because again, that's I overthink it. a pretty long it. list, isn't it? 15? It's a decent yeah. list, right? I mean, it, is, yeah. it is a decent list. But what, what I realized, especially on the initial list, is so many of the movies on that list were like, 1997 2001 it was like oh. a bunch of movies that like maybe i didn't see them all immediately after they happened because you know i don't think like a seven-year-old me was going to appreciate goodwill hunting but <laughs> like within you know the, within it's a decade joe, joe joe it's okay it's not your fault <laughs> thank you <laughs> but uh you know, those were all movies that I saw within, you know, like 10 years of them coming out. I was watching them at least by the time I was in high school and enjoying them. And so, you know, those movies have, you know, they're very good movies, a lot of them. But there's also that nostalgia factor. True. Like, to, to your point about, like, are there movies you shut your brain off a little bit too? Like, Remember the Titans is one of my favorite movies. I think it is, you know, a very well acted movie. I think the writing has moments. And then, like, the football scenes are awful. They're terribly directed. They're going to have, like, people, like, get CT to make a fucking movie? No, I'm just saying that, like, you can't even tell what's happening. You can barely tell what's happening in some of the, like, it's just quick cuts. A guy gets tackled. Like, what happened on this play? I don't know. Like, when you compare it to, like, Friday Night Lights, the movie, which goes a little too hard into, like, it almost has a video game feel at certain points. Yes. But, like, there's no. a visceral action to that the fil the football plays in the right. that movie that Friday Night Light or that Remember the Titans does not have at all. So yes. yeah, I think there's a nostalgia factor to some of these movies. And that's why I, on the next list I dropped some of them. I'll drop some even more. So seeing Private Ryan falls into that. It's 1998. I actually did see that when I was like nine years old. And at, at nine it was like incredible because Spielberg, the action scenes are just so intense, which right. when you're nine, it's just like, this is fucking cool. But I, what I've liked about that movie is as I've aged, now I appreciate it for different reasons, because now it's just like, my God, people went through this and Spielberg right. does an amazing job of capturing it. You know, any, anyone who's read up on Saving Private Ryan probably knows a lot of veterans who saw that movie from World War II had to leave. Like, I know my own grandfather my dad's dad he like had he like almost had like a like some sort of breakdown where like i think they had to give him some sort of tranquilizer to calm him down like he, he couldn't watch right. the movie right right and he was you know he, he wasn't there on d-day but you know he fought in the european theater sure so well, i think the other people who did right i mean yeah that's, that's totally possible too so I and mean, he was someone who didn't like to talk about it yeah. so I think there's that visceral action. I think Tom Hanks in that movie is so good just because he is good. he really captures the like every man in a way that yeah, rises to the occasion. Yeah. Right, which is what that war was. Is right. so many of those guys who went over there, they never had plans of being soldiers before that war happened. And I, I think you'll 
there's just the sacrifice of it. And I'll, I'll admit, like, there's flaws to the movie. A lot of people hate the bookend of older Ryan. I think it's okay. It's not my favorite part. Um, yeah. If you really, if you break down the squad of guys, I think they're well written, but they are somewhat caricatures of guys you've seen in movies before, where you have the religious guy, you've got the guy who's always mouthing off, you got the supportive sergeant. Vin Diesel's just the Italian guy because I think every World War II movie has an Italian guy. Right. So, you know, there, there's kind of that, but I, the little moments of that movie also hit differently now too, where it's like, I know Giovanni Ribisi has a scene where they're all just kind of shooting the shit at night. And then he talks about how his mom would come home late at night from working and he would pretend to be asleep. And now he looks back on it and he just, regrets it because he's like she wanted to see me more moments he could have had with right yeah and it's like this that scene has nothing to do with like the actual war or anything else that's going on but i'm like man like that fucking hits <laughs> there's not well no it does there's also a, a, a terrifying you know a very like brutally you know uh, intimate's the wrong word but you know it, it almost fits and, and i think it's the same person you're talking about when that person dies at the end when he's stabbed in the chest by the German, yeah. They kind of get like in a one-on-one. The guy, you know, stabs him in the chest. It's a it's a gut wrenching scene for for a couple of reasons. Um, yeah. Any kind of long drawn out fight that it kind of comes down to endurance. It, I think that's a thing that we can all kind of fear. It's like you're imagine like struggling to like your last effort and it not being enough. It wasn't like he got shot, you know, like quickly. It was like he was in a fight for like five minutes and he lost slowly and his friend who was with him is being a coward on the staircase as it's all happening like that yeah it's the whole scene um i i don't remember that scene bothering me that much when i was younger and i saw this movie when i was older and i saw it that scene was like that's it's rough I, so, sometimes like i don't even like watch that scene if it's on tv i'm like i don't, I don't want this in my life at this moment no it's but it's, and also, what, what let me say no, you go ahead. About, yeah, yeah. Yeah, about the beginning. Absolutely. Steven Spielberg does such an excellent job. And I would, I would also say so does Peter Jackson of uh, capturing grandeur in scenes and like really big scale. Mm-hmm. The way that Spielberg captures the opening moments of that movie when they're landing on D-Day. I mean, you feel like you're there. I mean, to your right. point earlier yeah. about the veterans had to leave. I mean, anybody hasn't seen this movie yet. I mean, it is. How did they even do that? I mean, it's, it, the, the it's incredible. Movie, Everybody's going up and machine gun fire coming down. It's, it's uh, one of the great directorial feats that I've ever seen in any movie. And, and, and it still looks great to this. Like I've seen the movie fairly recently, maybe a few years ago. It still looks great. Like it's, it still looks good. Yeah. So anyways, but yeah, it, back, back to, yeah. Yeah. So probably one of the last things I want to say about it, because we spent a decent amount of time on just saving private Ryan <laughs> is that, you know, I think, you know, people can argue about, you know, can any war movie be an anti-war movie? You know, I, like I said, when I was younger, I just thought it was awesome. And, you know, you can argue about, you know, he puts the sniper scene in where he shoots it through the other guy's scope. Like, that's yeah. just kind of cool. Right. And so I think, you know, you can level that criticism against it. But I think, you know, there's also the idea that, you know, it's, it's just rah-rah USA. And, you know, to a degree, I think, you know, it is a love letter to the guys who sacrificed. Sure. But you know spielberg and i'm blanking on who wrote the movie maybe it's steve zalian i'll have to look it up but uh i think it's you know it's notable that 
they, it's not like they don't interrogate the things at all. Like I think Upham is the great example where he's kind of, you know, he's the angel arguing for the, the one prisoner not to get murdered on right. Tom Hanks's shoulder. Everyone else is like, you know, Giovanni Ribisi, their medic just died. They're like, let's fucking kill this guy. Right. Right. And so, and Upham's like, no, this is, this is fucking wrong. We can't do this. Like we're losing our humanity if we do this. And also Robert wrote wrote the movie. But uh, there's also so, uh, those little Easter eggs in it too, where like when they're talking and like you think they're talking, talking at the very beginning, there's yeah. this, like a couple of prisoners are kind of like, yeah, right, yeah, the hands up, right. and, and they shoot him, and the guy's like, what did he say? And he's like, I washed my hands. They just kind of make light of it. And then, right. granted, this is a thing where you can't know unless like you read you this later on, or you speak English, which is that they're apparently they're speaking in polish and they're saying like you know we're polish we don't even want to fucking be here like yeah and then they get murdered yes and right. then yeah. and then up yeah at the same time he obviously has this coward at the moment and i think part of that probably a lot of people just get angry at it but i think part of it was we're supposed to be like i don't know what i would do in this situation. oh no no doubt do i think i would go up and try to save my guy i think i would right i don't know that no, no doubt unless, about it. Unless you've been there, you can't know. Definitely. And then after that scene, you know, now that guy's died. The dude walks past him up him and doesn't even pay him mind. And then we get to the very end of the movie and up him comes up on some German sh- soldiers running away. And it's the guy that he let go earlier. And the guy's like up him and up him shoots him. And so now he's killed that guy. And I think, uh, at least my experience, when you first watched it, you're like, yeah, fuck yeah, like, fuck right. that guy. But now you're like, but then you're like wait a second. I yeah, know. Prison, like, he's a prisoner of war. He shot a prisoner of war. Right. right. Where Upham starts out as the most innocent guy, the one who's trying to argue for decency in war. And by the end, in part because, his own, because of his own failings in battle, he is now committing a war crime. Right. To feel better about himself. To, to feel tough. And to like avenge your friend, basically. Yeah, which doesn't, you know, which doesn't actually, like most vengeance, doesn't actually accomplish anything. No, no. One so, more yeah. More of- so I think, yeah, Spielberg, the directing in Saving Private Ryan is phenomenal. I think the writing is really good, regardless of whatever smaller flaws it has. And then, yeah, I think it's just a really good examination of like what war does to people in some way. And, and I think to your point, too, how the audience how we respond to the movie over time is different. I would imagine a lot of people uh, responded to that movie differently. You know, what year did it come out again? You said uh, 1998. So I would imagine, you know, post 9-11, there was probably a lot of, you know, people watching the movie going like, yeah, this is it. This is how we should do it. You know, and, you know, it's, right. uh, it's, it's, it's an easy emotion to stir and, it definitely point. is. Uh, let me. You had some other good movies on your list too. Lady Bird, which I haven't seen. Uh, what What about Lady Bird? Is on. Put it on your list. Lady Bird is just. It's one. It's one of those movies where when I look up how long it is, I'm always kind of amazed because I believe it's like right on. It's 95 minutes, and obviously that's including credits. And it fits in so much and so many characters that you feel like you know kind of who this person is, even if you get two minutes with them. Right. So Greta, Greta Gerwig wrote and directed it. Um, she's also an actress, but 
this this was her first movie that she wrote and directed on her own and got a bunch of Oscar nominations. It's just it's really empathetic towards every character in the film, which is something that I increasingly like, especially because it's like a coming of age story. It's this girl in I think like 2001, 2002 Sacramento, who's it's her senior year of high school. And it's just kind of following her and her relationship with her family and her friends at school. And I, I especially like empathy when it comes to movies that are like looking at people when they're in high school or, you know, your early college years, any kind of coming of age thing, just because, you know, I think that, you know, there are villains in real life. There are people who are awful people. Right. But it's pretty rare for there to be true villains when you're like 17. <laughs> right. Like a lot of us are, you know, assholes, but we're right. not terrible. We're not ultimately right. terrible people. Right. Because, like, Timothy Chalamet kind of plays this guy who's her boyfriend for a little bit. And he's, you know, kind of a pretentious ass. Like, he, he's, well, at one party, he's just out in the back, like, by himself, by the pool, just reading Howard Zinn. And, which, like, that's something that tells you so much about that character yeah. in five seconds. You're just like, oh, <laughs> this is who this guy is. Right, right. He's the 17-year-old reading Howard Zinn. And, like, he had, to bring it, like, he had to bring it to the party. Like, it's like that more of, right. like, like, he had to put it in his pocket. Like, he probably had the fucking, like, fat brick bird. Like, he had to fit in his pocket, walk over. Yeah, no, it's the whole the whole thing. And, you know, it's, it's one of those movies also that just, it's so well-written, just even, like, the individual lines where, She's going like dress shopping for prom with her mom. And the kind of major through line of the movie is her relationship with her mom, which is kind of strained. And, you know, her mom just tells her like, I just want you to be, you know, the best version of yourself. And she says, what if this is the best version of myself? Which is like such a good, like, I think, especially when you're like 17, you're like, maybe this is who I am. And I doesn't, it doesn't like, I hope I get better, but maybe it almost it, it almost has a uh, it, it almost has a kind of vibe from uh, I Heart Huckabee's How Am I Not Myself? I love that line in I Heart Huckabee's Just be yourself. How am I not myself? How am I not myself? <laughs> How am I not myself? <laughs> right. So yeah, for me, it's just like, everything about that. That is a movie that to me is essentially perfect. Where sure, like and, and, and again, you see that's because it's shorter 95 minutes you can think you can probably make a perfect 95 minutes it's not not yeah a lot of time to you know screw around with basically you got to get it right definitely i i like that it's a good 90 minute movie i haven't seen that one yet but i i i want to watch it i like yeah definitely check it out directors that can that can do something in 90 minutes is impressive to me that's you know in movies now it seem very long which i i love long movies i prefer a long movie but i i i am always oh, so i i prefer short unless you can really justify it like for if you're a comedy and you go over 100 minutes you need to have a reason which yes right you know as, as much as i love you know like knocked up and stuff it's like yeah, that movie doesn't need to be two hours it's just no. it's not necessary no that's i completely agree i completely agree I uh, I think comedies are best short. I think you're probably gonna only get a few jokes in there that are good anyway. So really, let's right? That's the thing too. It's like, you know, the, your hit and miss ratio eventually is gonna go down. Like no one's that good. No, like eventually, no. you're including you, stuff that shouldn't be there. 
No, which is why I really my when it comes to comedy, I really love uh, television. Like a show like Reno Nine One One, where they pack in so much in twenty minutes, and like you really are laughing for twenty minutes straight because you're like, "Wow, they did it!" Like it's all it's all good. right. And he like you know we're kind of going on an offshoot here, but like look at Arrested Development. There were other issues with the, the Netflix version of Arrested Development. Like they had trouble getting all the cast together at one time, which is a key element of a comedy is having the cast interact. But also, Netflix removed the restraints of time. And so now it was like you're watching 33-minute episodes, 35-minute episodes, right. and it's like, this doesn't need to be this long. Like, it got no. more convoluted for no reason. Like, sometimes having that tight 22, 23 minutes is what you need. Right. And especially, like, if anyone's ever, if you're renting a movie on demand or you're buying a DVD or whatever, if you have the choice between the regular version of a comedy and the, like, unrated version. Unrated version is almost always worse. Maybe if it's PG-13, maybe it'll be better. Sure. If it's R, don't get the unrated one. It's just the version with all the jokes they didn't need in the movie. Like, the (laughs) 40-year-old version just has, like, five minutes of the two Indian guys swearing at each other. It's not good. Like, you don't want to watch it that much. Like, you're like, oh, this is funny, and you're like, oh, it's still going. Like, it's unnecessary. That yes, con- constraint drives creativity, especially in the uh, it does in the in, in the comedy world. That's that's definitely true. Um, like, I, I, real, real quick, just on that point, is uh, Netflix actually has a I'm forgetting the exact name of it. It's like how the the, the movies that made us. Oh right, and right, it, right. It's a really fun look at like some of the classic movies I've watched, like the Back to the Future one, the Forrest Gump one, oh, Dirty Forrest. Dancing. Right. Like they have a, and they just dig into like how the movies got made, like how much they struggled to find funding sometimes, or with studio pushback. Where like I know Forrest Gump, like Tom Hanks and uh, Robert Zemeckis, the director, both had to put in their own money at a certain point because the studio was like, we don't, we don't want to give you any more money for this movie. <laughs> and so of course they eventually, you know, they made a ton of money back. But you oh, know. Right. When you look at some of the stuff, some of the things you realize is sometimes those restraints really do make the movies better. Yeah, well, yes, I, I think the uh, this idea of the director's cut is, um, I think, kind of a gimmick. Sometimes it's like the, they, they probably cut it for a reason. I mean, if it was like you're saying, PG thirteen to R is, you know, that's different. But if it's apples to apples on the ratings, eh. yeah. If they if, if they cut it, they probably cut it for a reason. I, I, I want to know what exactly. They Let's talk a little bit about Almost Famous, and then I want to wrap up with some conversation on a critique in general. So that was your last movie okay. that you gave me, your top three, Almost Famous, which I have not seen, but I also want wow, to see. Oh, you haven't seen Almost Famous, Jimmy? No, I um, mm-hmm. Lady Bird, I want to see Almost Famous. I want to see, uh, there was another movie that I had wanted to watch for a long time that I, that I finally did watch. Maybe it was The Master a while back, but it's on my list. It, now that you're a movies for us, you want to give us a little, hey, we should watch these as well. So like like Lady Bird, because Greta Gerwig did grow up in Sacramento around that time. It's, you know, it's not autobiographical, but there's parts of it that are. And so Almost Famous is a, about a, I think he's 15 years old, 15 year old rock journalist who ends up, he right. ends up kind of the Rolling Stone actually gets confused about his age. I think he's an adult and they hire him to follow this kind of mid-level rock band around. And Cameron Crowe actually was like a teenage rock journalist. I don't know how much of it is exactly is true, but 
Um, so Patrick Fugit is the main star, and he's kind of a guy who just – if you saw his face, you'd be like, oh, I know that guy, but he never went on to you know be a big thing. Like he's the uh, second detective in Gone Girl and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, one, one thing I'll say just to show you the quality of the movie – Kate Hudson got nominated for an Oscar for this movie. So I, I do think I knew that she was in it. Yeah. Yeah. So Kate Hudson's a better actress than probably her reputation is because she's just been in a bunch of trash rom-coms that no one was going to save. But I don't think she's anyone's idea of like, oh, this is one of the great actresses of the last 20 years. And she got Oscar nominated and arguably should have won because she's fantastic in the movie. Um, it's just, it's another movie that's just exceptionally well-written. There's so many lines of that movie. Like if you ever heard somebody yell, I'm a gold, I am a golden God. That's from this movie. Um, it's just kind of like the peak of a bunch of different actors. Like, like I said, it's definitely peak Kate Hudson, um, Billy Crudup, who's one of the more underrated actors, I think of the last 20 years, just because. When you cast him in the right thing, he's so fucking good. And he's kind of, he's the lead guitarist who's like kind of beyond skill wise of the rest of the band. And that's one of the conflicts is. Oh, right. Everyone else kind of thinking like, ah, maybe this guy thinks he's better than us. Um, Francis McDormand is in it as the kid's mom. She's fantastic. It might be uh, on a permanent basis. It's probably my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. Oh, he's, I didn't know that. Because he's the uh, he plays a real life rock journalist, and he kind of takes the main character under his wing and gives him advice, and has the the best line of the movie, where I I I'll keep talking and I'll find the exact line because I don't want to f- flub it right here. But radio. no, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> But one of the things I love about it is I'm not someone who's like crazy into rock music. Like well, that's one of the things I love is when a movie or a show where it's about something that not, isn't necessarily like, like my thing. Right, right. And it can totally pull me in and just get me involved, emotional, all these things. And uh, yeah, so here, here's the line. And so this is towards the end of the movie where the main character is calling him for advice because he's like, I haven't written anything for this fucking story I'm supposed to do for Rolling Stone because I've just been hanging around with rock stars as a 15-year-old. <laughs> and so they talk to each you know, they're on the phone and he, Hoffman gives him some advice. And he kind of thanks him because it's like late at night. And he's just like, yeah, man, like I'm always home. I'm uncool. <laughs> and they kind of talk. And then Hoffman says, the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Which is just such a good fucking line. Like, that's one of those lines where you're like, I could, if I go on and like were to actually write movies, I will never write a line that good because it's just that fucking good. Right, right. <laughs> and yeah, it's just, it's a really fun movie. It's pretty like it's a movie that justifies being like two and a half hours long, even though it's like a dramedy, right? Right, right, Just because it's such a good time. So, yeah, I, I would absolutely recommend that. It, Cameron Crowe is also a good example of sometimes writers have a few essential things they need to get out and they need to make, and then they struggle to keep making really good movies. 
Yeah, we were talking about one such director before we began recording. Um, let me ask you this, Joe. Yeah. I like that list you gave us. I have seen one of them. I will see the other two. I want to wrap up our conversation talking about standards critics use for critiquing movies. We kind of started talking right. about you as a critic. Now I've kind of got some mm-hmm. here. So we, kind of, we kind of know you as, uh, as Joe the critic. And now I want to, I want to get a little, more, a little more out of you in terms of uh, standards for film. Before doing that, I want to share a music review we have this week. Yeah. It is from our R&R musical correspondent. Before I read it, I'm going to pause recording for just one second because I think my washer is about to destroy itself. I'm going to come right <laughs> We're going to do this. Give me one second. Boom, Sorry about that. I think my dryer must caught on fire. All is well. <laughs> okay. We have our music review today. In honor of talking about film review, we're talking about a film soundtrack today. This is coming from the soundtrack for The Big Chill. Notes, oldies, playlist of your dreams. Have you ever unintentionally experienced something out of order, like starting a show on season three or taking a left turn in Ikea when you should have gone right? This brings us to today's review. The soundtrack to the film, The Big Chill. A soundtrack I've listened to a hundred times before ever watching the movie. The Big Chill was released in 1983 and is a story of a group of college friends who are reunited at the funeral of one of their old companions. After the funeral, they all stay together for for a little while to reminisce and enjoy each other's company. Relative joy of being together after so many years apart soon turns more serious. They begin to share their struggles with life, love, and general malaise of turning into an adult. Their feelings and sentiments certainly draw empathy. However, there is no resolution to any of their problems. The film forces you to sit with the issues, which can be mildly uncomfortable and a touch too real. One thing for certain about The Big Chill is that the soundtrack is phenomenal. It is essentially a greatest hits playlist of the late 60s and early 70s. The songs capture the nostalgia of the characters' formative years, but frankly, the soundtrack is also just flat good on its own. It is a 10-song collection featuring artists such as The Temptations, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, and Smokey Robinson. As a child, it was a soundtrack to family dinners, And I'm guessing if your parents are boomers, it was the soundtrack to your meals as well. I remember asking my parents about the movie and they just shrugged and said, it's an odd film, but I just love the soundtrack. (laughs) So according to my parents, the best way to experience the Big Chill soundtrack is with family and a lot of tacos. Thank you to the R&R film Critic? I, I can't argue anything with the family and tacos. I'm in. Family <laughs> and tacos, I, I am in as well. Joe, but, no, we're moving on. It's over. You missed I was it. just going to say, that that is a movie I have not seen and has been on my list for a long time, so I will have to watch that soon. We, uh, yes. Well, Joe, it's a date. It's a date. Um, <laughs> okay. Here's the thing, Joe. Here's the thing. Hmm. You write these movie reviews. Obviously, you're a fan of film. Kind of got over how you got started in, 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 the, in the film critiquing r- world. 
know a little bit about your favorites. It's a thing these days. I see it every now and then. I'm sure you've seen it as well. Very diverging opinions between the critic score and the audience score, whether it's Rotten Tomatoes or sure, Rotten yeah. Tomatoes. We see this wide, and not always, but sometimes we see these wide gulfs between the score. Is there such a thing as objective standards by which we should review films? In other words, can I say objectively a film is good and a film is bad? And I will, I will get to why I think that question is important. I think the answer to that question is yes. And I will get to why I think it is important. But before doing that, I wanted to get your take on that question. Um, I mean, if you really go down the philosophical rabbit hole, I, I suppose the answer is no. <laughs> because ultimately, it is all subjective to some degree. Um, I do think, though, you know, we have generally held standards on certain things like you know, I, I think acting is probably maybe the one where you really do see a wide variety of opinions sometimes where like uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Joker, was that the performance of a lifetime or was that just a dude going way overboard? Like, <laughs> like a, a, lot, a lot of Oscar winning things you'll see like there, I suppose, the, a lot of time more acting seems to equal the best acting for a lot of people. I don't think that's correct, <laughs> but that's certainly the case, not only among, you know, the general population, but even among actors themselves. Sometimes it's just like, oh, this person's doing so much. That's so impressive. Where I think really, you know, there, there is obviously value in that, but if you can really do something while not doing it, like if you can, give me an emotional response without going overboard. If you can give me like subtle things, right. I think that's more impressive. But again, that ultimately is subjective. Um, yeah, I do think, you know, we can all kind of agree that like, oh, Steven Spielberg is a good director. The guys who have directed Adam Sandler films are, you know, mediocre and or hacks, like depending on how... <laughs> exactly Listen, what you want to say away by grown-ups too then i don't know what you're talking about I mean, right exactly is there a like, more deserving movie of our attention than the sequel to grown-ups <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i think you know there's we i think we can find a general consensus on some things i mean there obviously are movies like you said there are movies that every year it's like oh critics love this the green knight which i did just see and was originally gonna be the movie i reviewed last week before i wasn't able to um, that's a movie that has, I think, like a 90% Rotten Tomatoes, like an 80-something Metacritic score, and it's like in the 50% 50%-something 50 on Rotten Tomatoes for the audience score. Oh, interesting. And having, see having seen the movie, it makes a lot of sense that that is what happened because it's almost like a mood piece more than like a true... Like, there's a narrative, but if you haven't read the like Arthur because it's kind of like King Arthur what the original story is one of his knights this is like his interaction with the green knight but if you don't know that background which I only knew that that existed I didn't know the actual story right, right. it's kind of hard to follow some of the shit that's going on which again that also brings up probably more critics were a aware of this because apparently it's like a story that everyone who majors right. in English goes over right. in college right. So probably a lot of critics are English majors or they're, you know, are aware of this going in. 
general audience isn't. What is that? How do you grade the movie on that? That's, you know, that's a subjective question there where should I have to know shit going in? Right. Or not? Um, if I was going to grade that movie, I'd give it a B because I'm torn between those two <laughs> ideas. Right, right, right. And I, I think that, that that's actually a really interesting question. What, what is the expectation of the audience when you're watching a movie? What, what should they have to know? If you're, if you're a critique of the last season of Game of Thrones is that you didn't follow it, but you hadn't watched seasons one through seven, I'm not going right. to, it's not valid. It's like, you didn't watch the whole show. Um, right, and that that comes into especially now that you know the, the MCU is the dominant right. movie thing, dominant of movie culture right now. At right. least, which a, a lot of the critics I follow are not thrilled about, for not surprisingly. Right. But yeah, if if you haven't seen, like, I think that's a question with as each of these movies happens. Should I have to have watched, you know, at least 20 of the 25 movies right. to understand Plus, what's happening in this one? The after credits. Should I have to watch the bonus features, basically, in order to <laughs> what's happening in the next one? Which, yeah, I think that's yeah. a complicated question. It's one of the reasons I generally, like, if we were ranking MCU movies, I don't know that any Avengers movie would be in my top five. Because they all depend on the one before it? Because I'm, I guess I do like Captain America Civil War would probably be my top five. And that one is dependent on you having at least probably have seen Ultron. If you haven't seen Ultron, I don't think that movie makes sense. But that, you know, that movie does have that factor. But in general, I kind of like the more closed ended, like yes. this movie can stand on its own. Like I think Winter Soldier is probably the best one. I think Black Panther is up there. For Ragnarok, you know, obviously it helps to have seen the other movies sure. in the Thor franchise, that one's but so also different than it's a yeah, totally movies. a totally different movie yeah. than the first two. Yeah. So I kind of like the more closed-ended things. I think that's a really good point. Personally. Even for people who like, like I like reading graphic novels. It's hard to find a graphic novel that you can just read the one of without having to read the thirty before it in order to know. Yeah. What's uh, there's actually a really good standalone uh, comic book called Marvels, um, which is a standalone, and I highly recommend. But for that reason, you don't have to have read the you know 30 years of you know comic books to know what's going on. If so, then let me ask you this: what what is the role of a critic? then if you think that the that the uh, standards are subjective, is it is it part of the is it part of the entertainment experience that you have people kind of talking about the film in another light or you know, what are, what are you trying to say when you, when you give a film a grading, what are you trying to say um, about the film? Why, why give it a grade? Um, I just kind of like being able to quantify things. Sure. To a degree. Like I'm someone who, I mean, Letterboxd exists now and I should probably be switching over to that because that's more of a communal, like everyone's discussing and ranking movies, but on IMDb for like probably seven or eight years now, at least. I rank every every new movie that I saw that year. So every movie that came out that year, uh, on their one to ten score, which I wish it gave halves because I love to just have more variety. But so I, I end up with a million like sevens, <laughs> seven out of tens. But I like to be able to quantify like, oh, how did I feel about this movie when I watched it? Right. And then it's you know sometimes I revisit them and I'm like, oh no, this grade was fucking way off. I will say you you asked me earlier about uh, you know trying to enjoy a movie while also trying to critique it. I do think you know that can be a struggle. One thing I've tried to do since I've started doing this for you guys is not 
really look too much at reviews before I watch it and write right. my own. Right. Like sometimes, uh, you know, I'll, I've written some and then I'll read a little bit more about the movie to get more context and stuff. But, I, you know, a, I just don't want my own opinion to be swayed too much in either direction. But I, the biggest thing for me, less so than I know some people like they're always like, oh, they got bad reviews. So you think it's bad because of that? And I'm like, no, it's because the movie's bad. But my, my bigger struggle is when a movie gets amazing reviews. Right. And, and, and you don't because because like... <laughs> that turns on the the critique part of my brain oh. more than like if you're like right. if you're like oh this movie if the movie is like oh it's 50 percent rotten tomatoes it's a 44 in metacritic i'm like all right cool i'll watch it we'll see what happens but i like moonlight is a movie i need to rewatch because i saw it one time in theaters i you know i respected the hell out of it i think it's one of the best directed movies i've ever seen yeah i really but, but there, I have my my main issue with that movie is actually the way that it was. It's cut into you know three segments. Oh sure, sure. Where it's like he's a kid, he's a teen, he's an adult, and it felt like each time one of those segments would end. Well, the first two, I guess. I'd be like building up this emotional response, and then it would cut to the next one, and right. now I'm reorienting myself. And I thought that kind of undercut the emotional pull of the movie. But also, again that movie had like a 98 Metacritic and Metacritic like Rotten Tomatoes is just a binary. If you're looking at the percentage, it's a binary. It's did they give it a positive review? Did they give it a negative review? So if you are, you make a good movie, it's not that hard to score in the nineties on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. Obviously it's hard to make a good movie, but right. If everybody says it was okay, hundred percent Rotten Tomatoes, everybody said it was okay. Right. Like people look at like the last couple of Harry Potter movies. It's like, they're all like 90, whatever percent, but like, there weren't a ton of people being like, this is one of the great movies of this year. It's just like, oh, this is a well-done movie. Whereas like on Metacritic, they're trying to gauge, like if we add up people's scores, like if they gave it an 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, whatever, what does that equal out to? And they do great. Like some critics get higher, play in a higher percentage. Like when Roger Ebert was alive, I'm sure his percentage was higher than like whoever was writing for Vulture. But like the that was a movie that scored like a 98. So I'm going in or boyhood's another good example where that movie was like a 98, 99. And so I'm going in, I'm like this movie, I'm expecting it to be like one of the great movies I've seen this year, maybe in my lifetime. <laughs> and it was just an okay. Movie. And then you see the movie and you're like, Oh, it was good. You know, but I'm totally blown away. And then that becomes like, wait, was I being fair to this movie? Did I, that's why I do think I always feel like I have a better grasp of a movie if I see it twice. Now, some movies you don't need to. They're clearly bad. They're clearly, you know, they clearly are what they are. But right. I think a lot of movies, I, the way I'll receive them the second time will be a little bit different, for better or for worse. But especially, I think that that helps me to like not be so overwhelmed with the, trying to critique it the first time. So I don't even remember where what your question was before this. <laughs> well, it was <laughs> I so, went down such a rabbit hole. No, no, no. It was a good. It, I think it was a good answer. So I was, I was curious. So I, I think in oh, general, you asked me about the grade, right? Yeah. But grade. right, I think in general we should. I think as like a species, I don't mean this as you or me, like as a species, we should try to understand objective standards of art in order to hold ourselves accountable for making good movies. But I would say as a caveat, not only that. But if, if we stumble upon 
objective standards for, for artistic creation, that it forces us to give the creator of that content respect, whether or not we want to or not. And I think that's really valuable in a time when we're having really important conversations around things like diversity and inclusion in the movie making world. Right. You can actually tell a group of people, look, even though that person's black, they made a really good movie and you have to admit it, it's a good movie. You don't get to say, I don't like it. It's, it's a good movie. And even if you don't want to admit that, you have to because we have these standards that we have that we can that, show is a good movie. That, that is also a good reason to ignore some audience scores. <laughs> right. Because but, you, which is, you which is the point see that these online yeah. backlashes yes. to, I mean, I think you can argue whatever you want about uh, The Last Jedi. I think, you know, there's a case to be made. It's like the best Star Wars movie. This case to be made, it fumbles a number of things. I'm kind of in the middle. I think it was good. It's probably the best of the most recent yeah. trilogy. I think Rogue I, One's the I best agree of the with new that. ones. But. I think it was, the, it was among the best of the new, not as good as the original trilogy, which but, I think is fair to say. I but I, I also bring... We were so... Were good. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I also bring that movie up too because I think it brings up an interesting question about what people want out of their movies because beyond obviously there was like the like woke backlash to that movie which is just stupid that people are angry that like there, there's an asian actress and a right. black guy and like it's just like all right guys sorry everyone's not white like tough shit but, but there's like there's also like there already were aliens and then like why is this yeah like did it bother you when like han solo shot some guy with a fucking tube for a nose like that was like, that, person there. that person should have been a white guy like right it's ridiculous <laughs> but i think that movie's more interesting from the standpoint of it really it challenges the audience of what they expect of a star wars movie where you've right. got a, a i can't remember everyone's names now but uh oh kylo ren so you got him yeah, he's right. like arguing against the binary of like the Jedi are good, the Sith are bad. He's like, fuck that. Like, you and me, let's create our own path. Right. Like, that's a really interesting thing. Um, this whole, the whole saga and then this return, Rise of Skywalker really, I think, just shits the bed in this regard. Where Last Jedi tries to make this argument that, like, this isn't all about the fucking Skywalkers. And... Right. Well, this isn't about like this right. isn't about like two fa- one or two families. Right. Like anyone can have the force. I think that's a great argument. And then the sixth movie is like, oh fuck that. She's no. Palpatine's well, yeah. that, granddaughter. Uh, uh, I forget his name. The the black actor that began as a stormtrooper. Why didn't he become the Jedi? He they they at one point he had a fucking laser sword even. Like it was like right there and it just like went away. I was like what? Yeah, John John Boyega definitely does not get the payoff he deserves and that includes it to a degree in the last jedi as well the last two movies kind of fail him to some degree yeah but yeah i think that movie challenged what people are we look at luke he's kind of this bitter old man now i think it all tracks with like the story it lays out i was fine with it i'm also not a star wars yeah i'm not a star wars fanboy either though so yeah i think you get these questions of like do you want to just give the audience what it expects and what it wants or do you want to challenge your audience? Now, like, if you look at Avengers Endgame, that clearly is a movie that just gives the audience what it wants. Oh, I think right. it does it very, very well, right. all things considered. I think it's a success in that regard. But 
I do think you want to challenge audiences. And I, that's something you'll see with critics where if it gives audiences exactly what they're expecting, if it's very fan servicey, right. critics won't necessarily dislike it, but they're not going to rave about it. Whereas if you challenge what's expected, that I'm more excited by that. Oh, no, I am too. And I, and I, I think I, critics are, but not everyone is. Well, which is why I think, you know, if we, if we could discover, let's say, objective artistic standards, then it would give critics grounds to challenge the audience along with the director. Where the critic could say, no, guys, you're you know, reacting this way to the movie, but really we can show you, like, it, it, this really is a good movie. Like, you and I like yeah. it as a feeling on your part. And, um, you know, I think it, it, it would be great to work towards that because, um, because then it obviously it takes away all of, you know, the backlash that, you know, the nonsense that happens online, which is always, you know, stupid right. and silly and holds, and holds people back. But, and um, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> no, unfortunately. But, but I, it, it would be a great to have another tool in or maybe, in, well, yeah, I'll say another tool in the, in the tool chest of a way to, to rebut against that would be something mm -hmm. like, this is a really good actor because they do all these things really well. And these are the traits. Yeah. Of something like that. It, it, this mm -hmm. is a good story. Why? Because it has all these traits. These are traits of a good story. Something like that. Um, as another you know, kind of tool in, in this fight, because uh, I think it's an important fight to get right. Yeah. And just to be clear to people, if you disagree, like if some movie is raved about and you don't like it, it's not automatically like invalid or something. Oh, no. Well, it's crazy. Like, it's okay to be like go against the grain. Of course. I, but I also think, I think we have an issue in general when we talk about art between like, it's good and I like it. Those aren't yes. necessarily the same thing. That's a really good point. Like, I do, I do think, you know, there's kind of a reverse of that where some people call things guilty pleasures and it, it often is like, oh, a rom-com is a guilty pleasure or a horror movie is a guilty pleasure. And then like, it's no, some of those are just legitimately good. You don't have to fucking couch it and I feel guilty right. about it. But I, at the same time, I can recognize like, I love Love Actually. Does that movie have a lot of issues? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> it's okay to understand that like you can like something or love something right. and it's not necessarily great. Yes, or you no, can I dislike something and respect the hell out of like what they were doing. You'd be like, this movie's well directed. It just didn't connect with me. That's okay. I think that's a great point to I think bridge the two things that we're saying. That there is there there is a role for objective standards and a role for feeling, basically. To put it, you know, kind of lightly, I guess. Um, you know, there are movies that we like for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with their artistic quality. We like where we were when we saw them. They're a moment of nostalgia, like you mentioned earlier, Saving Private Ryan or another movie. There are, there, there is, yeah. you know, every art exists within an, an experience. And there are things that are part of that experience besides the content itself. And all of that will yeah. impact how we respond and reflect. Right. Like, well, yeah, like I said, like earlier, one of the things I like about Almost Famous is I'm not a huge, like, music person there's a reason i am not the music correspondent like i would be awful at that <laughs> and yet i love that movie but also like i know like personally if your movie is about faith in a challenging way like not like a christian movie where it's just like christianity is great convert like 
Right. I like movies like I, I really like Silence from uh, Scorsese a few years back, which is a movie that really I think interrogates you know interrogates faith, interrogates colonialism, but like if you give me a challenging movie about faith, I will generally be in. Some people don't give a shit about faith. That's fine. They either feel so secure in theirs or they're so much an atheist that that has no appeal to them. That's okay. There's right. nothing wrong with either of those perspectives right. necessarily. But like that's something that appeals to me. So I understand that's and again, that's also why I and I think any critic will tell you, read the review. Like yeah. when people are like, well, Rotten Tomatoes said this. First of all, like I always say, Rotten Tomatoes is binary. I like Metacritic more because it's not. But your best bet always, if you want to know, should I see a movie, is you find a couple critics that either have similar taste to you or are good enough you know, writers that they can explain to you. You, know, you all have a good understanding of what the movie's like. Right. And just read those people, listen to those people. That's the best way to guide yourself. Like, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. It's fucking weird as shit movie. <laughs> like, if you're like, I never liked Kristen Wiig on SNL, don't fucking watch this movie. You're not going to like it. Right. Like, it, it doesn't matter that I gave it a B. Like, you won't like it. Right, that's, right, right. That's okay. Yeah. But, like, I think that's, that's always one of the funny things is if you go to see a movie that uh, is a little a little outside the norm but is really well reviewed like i know uh sam and his girlfriend at the time went to see her and right. there's a scene in her where, where people don't know it's uh, joaquin phoenix in the near future i think and he's kind of got this ai girlfriend who's just a voice and there's a scene in it where they have phone sex because that's the only way that they can have sex right and Sam told me there's an older couple that just walked out in the middle of the scene. <laughs> and I think that, that especially tends to happen with older people because I think they tend to like, they open up the paper. I mean, it's not the paper anymore, but they go wherever they go right. and they see like, oh, four stars. Great. I'll go see this. And it's like, no, you should probably find out what the movie's about first. Right. Because otherwise you couldn't end up you know, for a weird surprise. Like, I know, like, David Lynch, I haven't watched a ton of his things, but, like, Mulholland Drive is this super well-reviewed movie. I watched it. I was so fucking confused. I did not like it. I go Then I actually read the reviews afterwards, because I just watched it on TV, so I wasn't, like, spending money. But And they're all like, yeah, it's basically like a dream come to life. And I was like, all right, that kind of makes sense. That's what that movie <laughs> is. I, I'm more of a narrative person, usually. It's, uh, like the Tree of Life was another movie where it was like critics topped number one. I think it was the number one rated movie by critics that year. And I was like, it was okay. <laughs> Tree of Life? That but, one was yeah. uh, Hugh Jackman, right? No, that one. What was the Hugh Jackman one? There is some weird, weird Hugh Jackman one. It was one. like a tree that gives him life. But, uh, interesting that we're thinking different movies. That was like The Fountain or something. The right? Fountain, that's or, right. Yeah, that I love The Fountain. Yeah, yeah. Tree of Life is this wild kind of thing where it nominally follows the life of this kid and his parents are Jessica Chastain and Brad Pitt. Oh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, he grows up to be Sean Penn, but it's like, that movie is kind of like a poem as a movie, except it's three hours long. (laughs) (laughs) Where you you literally see the creation of life, some sort of form of afterlife, 
some people loved it for me i i know my friend cody he wanted to, to leave halfway through the movie i was like we got to stick it out but yeah the point is while there are somewhat objective standards no one the way you react to it is not necessarily always going to align with that that's and true. that's okay but just be aware of it and then don't say like it's fun to just shit on movies sometimes don't get me wrong just like yeah movies fucking trash but in reality if a movie's got good reviews it's like it's usually not trash (laughs) sure no right right exactly it's it's okay to be like it's not for me here are the reasons why and then still respect that other people have different opinions so that's my my thing is i think most critics would say is you're trying to create a dialogue about the films that you're critiquing. Okay. Like you're trying to add to it. No, I don't think anyone would say like, they're the decisive, like this movie's good. This movie's bad. My opinion is final. It's, you just want to try to guide people to have, you know, just to make it a more rewarding experience. Like even if like, and also some reviews are better read after you see a movie depending like again the green knight was a movie that i've really enjoyed reading about afterwards and now i like the movie more so i think it's all about creating a dialogue and just enhancing the experience and then also again somewhat trying to guide people because who wants to spend 15 dollars and go see a movie you fucking hate no right exactly (laughs) i like that joe i think that's a great place uh to wrap up well like i said we have really enjoyed your reviews uh so far any other things you wanted to add in today anything else people should know about you as they continue to see uh your reviews on our show um not not really i don't <laughs> well, off good. the top of my head we covered a lot <laughs> i like that excellent very concise um good everybody well thank you for <laughs> I, don't know we, I don't know if that's true <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's probably not our most uh, concise. Joe, before we, we sign off, do you want to give off any uh, websites, blogs, Twitter, or whatever, anything for people to find you on? Um, if you go on a sports on the uh, IBN network, I think that's what you type in. I do a, a fantasy football podcast as well, and then I'm probably starting a second podcast that will also be discussing football during the season. So if you're into football, check that out. Uh, you know, otherwise, you know, just stick around here. Obviously, you guys are covering a lot of different stuff that I don't know very much about. And then the music reviews are also fantastic. So yes, you know, stick to this. And if you like football, check out the IBN network. And tell us, give us that name one more time. You cut out as you were giving it out. Give us that fantasy football one one more time. Um, I believe it should be the, uh, it might be the IB network. It's IBN or the IB network on Spotify. I do the uh, weekly daily fantasy football podcast. Very. So if, if you want to gamble on football this year, check it out. <laughs> well, everybody, uh, if you don't like gambling, a sure bet is our podcast, Rosen Rudder. <laughs> find us out rosenrudder.com. Follow our charming correspondent uh, at Jose four underscore Squarevo on Twitter and Instagram. And of course us on Twitter and Instagram at roses underscore rhetoric. Um, Joe, we'll put all of your fantasy football stuff in the uh, description below the video today. 
Um, thank you again for doing this. I am uh, Jimmy Hackett signing yeah, out. It's a pleasure. Hey, this is a lot of fun. We'll, we'll get you back on soon and we'll have a review from you for next week. Until then, I am Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joe Matz saying ciao.